Hey everyone, Katie Ganaway here, your host for this show, Arts Underground. We have embarked about 45 minutes west of Huntsville to Clearwave Recording Studio Indicator to meet up with our guest today, Jeremy Stevens. He's the owner and audio engineer of Clearwave and founder of 10 Ton Records. Jeremy created this loose, relaxed space for artists of many genres where they roll up their sleeves, plug in, jam out, and eventually send some new tracks out into the music verse. A note before my conversation with Jeremy here, just so you are aware, the quality of the audio may sound a bit off today, and I'll save you the trip to your email inbox. Yes, we are working on it. Tell your friends. And stick around. After our chat, we are spinning some local flavor, courtesy of Jeremy and Clearwave. We are also premiering some brand new music from artists like Dweeby, Camacho, Taylor Honeycutt, and more. Without further ado, let's jump in and take in our surroundings. You know, we like to have a lot of fun here. I think the recording uh, studio should be fun. This is kind of my version of what I think a recording experience should be. You know, lots of weird things on the walls and baby doll heads and Christmas lights. And, you know, it's just to say that, or it's just a feeling of we don't take ourselves too seriously, but we take music very seriously. And I just... I like for it to be uh, fun and ridiculous and fighting. I would say cozy, for sure, because it smells amazing in here. <laughs> and the, the there's definitely some mood lighting and uh, flags and rugs and everything. So can you talk about sort of how you accumulate all this kooky fun stuff that's that's sitting around here? Like I saw a hand, a wooden hand. Where you mix everything in there, I've I've seen as you said baby doll heads. There's some grapes draped over the panel up there, sound panel up there. Yeah, I'm terrible at throwing things away, so I guess I'm a hoarder. Uh, no, not really. I, you know, of course the music equipment comes first. You know, there's a lot of uh, equipment and stuff over here. But as far as accumulating, you know, a lot of times bands will leave stuff here, or you know, like drum heads. You know, they. Uh, that kind of turned into a thing. They'll sign the drum heads. And, uh, you know, as far as the pictures on the wall, most pictures on the walls are album covers that have been recorded over here. And, um, you know, they're like my little trophies. You know, we have uh, the guitar pedals on the wall. It's my favorite. Because if you look closely, uh, there's a stick of deodorant over there. <laughs> Who's, whose deodorant is that? Uh, it's a particular band that... Uh, <laughs> That became, uh, you know, necessary. But I'm not going to tell you which band. <laughs> well, okay. You you were talking earlier about this uh, painting on the wall yeah. of, a, of a lion. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that is special to you. Why? Uh, it's something my grandmother painted. You know, when I got married, you know, that kind of looked ridiculous in her house. You know, <laughs> my sweet wife, you know, she probably wasn't her style. But, you know, here we are in 2023-24, and uh, that's perfect for this studio. So in that picture there is a, uh, that's the band Wings, but that was one of my first uh, records ever, and you'll open it up. and. You've said that Paul McCartney is a huge sort of influence on your life musically. Can you talk about that? Sure. Well, I mean, you know, it's very cliche. I mean, everybody likes Paul McCartney. He's... But, uh, you know, the, the Beatles, I mean, that was one of the first bands that uh, I started listening to. And I'm not that old. I mean, it was it was in the 
80s. But, uh, yeah, you know, I was into the Beatles, and he was my favorite Beatle, and, you know, he played bass and kind of inspired me to play bass. So here we are. We have talked about your sort of upbringing with your parents who were both music teachers. Um, can you talk about what that was sort of like? Like, did they bring that home to you and uh, sort of influence your musical taste? Uh, yes. Uh, well, the, you know, they were both music teachers and, you know, they were always involved with the civic uh, music stuff. And, uh, you know, they taught lessons at our house. And I can remember being a teenager and uh, sleeping late on a Saturday afternoon. And from the other room, I hear a <coughs> this violin. You know, she was teaching violin lessons and uh, also saxophone lessons. Uh, I think my, my dad taught the saxophone lessons. No, they are always involved with something, and that kind of trickled down to me, and it kind of made me obsessed with music, especially recorded music. I just knew I wanted to be a part of it. So I started playing the bass, because we had one, and I just did the things that a kid does that starts playing an instrument back then. We started a uh, garage band, and, uh, you know, we just started playing gigs and shows. And one time we won this Battle of the Bands thing, and uh, the grand prize was studio time at this really nice studio. And I can remember going in there for the very first time and just being like, oh, you know, and I just knew, you know, that was where I wanted to, uh, I, I just knew that's where I wanted to be. I felt like I could live there. You know, all the cool instruments and the uh, speakers and the control room that looked like the cockpit of the uh, Millennium Falcon. I decided, yeah, I was just realized that all those cool records I listened to came from a place like that. You know, I think I'll do that for a living. Which studio was this that you're talking about? It was a classic uh, Huntsville studio called Sound Cell. Who was over that? Do you remember? Oh, Doug Smith. I think they may still be there. You were involved with Duct Tape Studio. That's right. How did you go from the prize of some studio time in Huntsville to working at Duct Tape? Well, when I um, was in college, I went to college at the University of North Alabama, and when I was there, uh, I worked at this pro sound, like this um, sound company. And I learned that back in Decatur, my favorite record producer, rock record producer, Johnny Sandlin, was looking for a assistant engineer. And I pretty much begged him for a job. And um, I guess he didn't have a lot to choose from. So he, uh, you know, he hired me. Initially, I started making coffee and taking out the garbage and cleaning the bathroom. But he taught me, you know, how to be an assistant engineer, which is, you know, keeping up with tapes and making these track sheets. And sometimes I, I would do a uh, rough mix or something, setting up microphones. You know, within like, you know, probably two or three weeks of working for Johnny, I found myself being an assistant engineer on a major label rock record. What were some of the big challenges that you ran into when you were honing your craft behind the board? I guess when it comes to mixing, I always do better if I mix like like I want it 
you know, I mix for myself. Like I want it, what I think it should sound like. I mean, when I first started, well, one thing I learned from Johnny, there was this period where we had like this, these super long sessions, like just 80 hour weeks for a very long time. And we finally took a day off, but there needed to be some rough mixes made. And he asked me to do, just do a rough mix of this one song. And usually a rough mix will take you like 20 minutes, but I spent probably 13 hours <laughs> mixing this song. And I, uh, I was kind of thinking, well, what would Johnny do? You know, how would he mix this? And I, you know, because I'd spent a lot of time watching what he does and how he, you know, things that he uses for certain things. And every decision I made on that mix, I mixed it how I thought Johnny would mix it. Finally gave it to him. I was super proud of it. And I think he hated it. <laughs> but fortunately, maybe a month later, he asked me to do another one. And I was like, ah, screw it, you know, I'm just going to mix this how I want it to be, you know. And, uh, you know, he liked that one pretty good. I mean, it was very encouraging. I mean, he, he certainly griped about it, but he definitely uh, liked it a lot better. So that, I just, from that I learned just mix how you hear it, not how you think someone else is going to hear it. When somebody comes into Clearwave for a tour or to record or whatever, where in the studio would you say you could see Johnny in? Like, do you have any sort of personal items that you oh. took in here? Or? Well, I was able to buy his, uh, his B3 organ and uh, actually the wireless for piano. Yeah, it's definitely, you know, some things I keep around just to kind of remember my old pal. Because <laughs> he's passed away since. Yeah, yeah. He passed away probably uh, six years ago, I think. How did you take it when he passed away? Uh, I mean, it was certainly a tremendous loss, you know. I uh, he, he was definitely like a father to me, but I have a real, you know, I had a father who's also gone and it was really good to me, you know. So I'm super blessed to have, you know, two mentors. But, uh, you know, it's inspired me just to, just to keep going and carry the torch, and, but still do my own thing, you know. And that includes 10 Ton Records. When did that start? Uh, 10 Ton Records, you know, I, I'm not, you know, it seems like we started maybe 2016, I think. And it's just, at the time, I was working with a collection of bands who I thought were great, and I didn't really know what to do with them i mean there were ever been there have been times where i would uh you know if there was a band i thought was really great i would try to you know shop them with record labels or investors to get some money to you know keep it going i don't know it seems like those people always made terrible decisions so i was like well we just do it all here and you know somebody wants to you know buy it or whatever then we can uh you know, do that. Perusing your website, <laughs> I saw um, the phrase that really stuck out to me about Tun Tun and Clearwave, I guess, is uncompromising freedom of expression. And I would think that's your maybe your credo for these artists who come in here, like Lamont Landers or Camacho, Drop Diver. I just want people to be very comfortable in saying what they want to say you know, lyrically, and also I want them to express themselves emotionally when they're singing or playing or whatever. To me, that's where the good stuff is, is with music. 
you know, music, when you hear it, you're supposed to feel something, you know, that's cornerstone of who we are, really. You here at Clearwave, Jeremy, are sort of trying to get the sound of each individual band or musician. Um, how do you sort of foster that in this space? Yeah, I think every band that comes through here, there's always something that some kind of specialness that makes them unique in who they are and I try to bring that out sometimes they're afraid of it you know they're and I try to just give them permission to be who you are because being you know unique and one of a kind is like your greatest superpower I'd rather not try to copy what other people you know have have done you know I try to I try to be unique and help bands be unique and appreciate their their unique self there are some moments I understand that kind of stick out in your memory uh, ridiculous or amazing uh, recording moments can you talk about those there's just some special moments in time especially when you have a live band playing all at the same time and you know there's these moments where the, the music kind of takes over the room and it's just electric in here. And, you know, the walls are vibrating. And I feel like, you know, you can spend six hours on trying to get a drum set to sound good, but when magic is happening and everybody's playing and not really, it's almost involuntary. Those are definitely my favorite moments. And there's been some weird things that happen where... Uh, one band, uh, Taylor Honeycutt's band, uh, they were in here playing, uh, working through a song. We we're about to record it, um, but then the uh, power went out. Um, so you know they they kept going. They kind of changed gears a little bit. The uh, couple of the guitar players, they all grabbed acoustics. So they could hear their themselves, and it really changed the uh, vibe of the uh, song, and uh, it and what they did with the way they changed it, it just came alive. And then, so when the power came back on, that's how we recorded it. Um, and this, we're kind of lucky that happened. And then there was one time where this uh, this is going to sound kind of weird, but. I don't think it was, I'm trying to think which band it was, but we were recording and the Stray Cat came in the studio and, uh, <laughs> and, uh, anyway, we were recording and the cat sat on the console and just kind of just stared at me the whole time and just kind of, he looked kind of gangly or whatever and, um, but I was afraid to touch the knobs like he was going to attack, attack me or something, give me rabies, but, so... <laughs> So I didn't really, you know, we just kept the tape rolling, and uh, which was a good thing. The the band killed it, you know, and I think maybe we called the cat the producer. On that <laughs> one. I think he, I think he got a credit on the album. You've told me before that you were very much into like Count Basie, yeah, uh, a lot of jazz growing up, and so, you know, you fell in love with recorded music that way. So, do you try to bring that? influence in when you have a recording session with an artist oh yeah definitely i mean i, I uh definitely love the uh, lively performance thing and um and there's i like 
things when they're a little bit dangerous sounding, when you can kind of hear the musicians like playing at their limits and maybe they're maybe going beyond themselves and maybe the whole thing's going to go to pieces and go off the rails. You know, to me, it's the most energetic and fun sounding thing that you can do. The burning question everybody wants to know, what were you listening to in the car on your drive over here? Uh, Eagles of Death Metal. Tell us more about this band and and their uh, influence on you. Oh, I'm just a big fan of the band. Uh, I don't know, they they have a very good sense of humor about them. They're not really a death metal band, they're just a kind of a fun rock and roll band from the desert. <laughs> and th- that leads me to the question... Um, I understand you don't really get starstruck, but there is one person mm-hmm. on this entire planet that you would love to meet more than anybody. Who is that? Sting is the one artist that me and my wife agree on. You know, she doesn't want to hear Eagles, Eagles of Death Metal, <laughs> but we can both chill out and listen to Sting. That is the question. Okay, if you got Sting here at Clearwave to record even like just a single, what would what would you want him to record? Whatever he wants to record. (laughs) What would you suggest, uh, what sort of equipment around here or uh, weird sounds or whatever would you suggest to to include on said single, (laughs) hypothetical single? I mean, I I would definitely want to go back to the uh, four-piece rock and roll sounding thing. You know, that's, that's, you know, my favorite stuff that he's done. I guess I should say three-piece rock and roll band the police and you also uh, spoke about his drummer you have a story with the police's drummer i was recording on the session in nashville uh it's very expensive high dollar session and uh you know all the studio musicians were kind of rolling in i mean you know they have cartage which they don't have to carry their own stuff but uh anyway I don't know, I recognized one guy coming in. I was like, I know him from somewhere. Who is that? And they were like, that's Vinny Kalaluda, which is uh, a Sting's drummer. And, you know, I was definitely starstruck with that guy. Uh, And I'm more affected, starstruck, by uh, musicians that are like the backup musicians, you know, the guys who have played with everybody, you know. uh, Leland Scalar, I mean, David Hood and the Shoals. You know, those are the type of people who that uh, impress me the most, and those are people I want to watch and look at while I'm, you know, watching a concert, or, you know, live or even on TV. You know, I'm looking at the drummer or the bass player. Now, your goal here at Clearwave, to, to sort of sum it up, what would you say? Because I know that you've talked about wanting to make records that get Grammys, <laughs> um, but, but in your own words, what would you say? You know, I say Grammys because uh, that's a joke. They don't normally, I mean. You've had Grammy Award winning artists here. You've had Jason Isbell. You've had Brittany Howard. Yeah, and, you know, and let me be clear. I mean, I, what I did didn't win a Grammy with those people, okay? <laughs> right, right. But they've been here is what we're saying. Yeah. yeah. It would be nice to uh, win a Grammy because they don't normally give Grammys to poor people. <laughs> If you ever notice, there's always rich people. <laughs> What's most important to me is that uh, the music is good. And uh, 
because you know that's just what matters most and to me what makes music good is music that you feel something when you hear it and uh, I think as long as we achieve that then I'm very happy like if somebody was listening to a drop diver track and they wanted to look for your influence in there do you do you have anything you could point to or maybe overall something people could look out for or listen out for uh, I just like the uh, angst and the funness and the uh, songs that make you want to shake your ass. You know, I like that kind of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> songs that make you want to drive fast. You've talked about a few uh, strange instruments that you've mic'd up that you've recorded. Can you can you yeah. relay those to us? Well, let's see. I've recorded a harp over here, uh, a sousaphone. You said there is a particular uh, thing that happened in the parking lot. Oh, yeah, I mean, we had a shotgun in the parking lot. We only have one. You only have one chance to do that. Yeah. Did the, did the cops come? Well, no. The second shot, they'll come. So this is Decatur. <laughs> what was the weirdest thing that you've had to do to sort of modify the studio to get a particular sound? Because one of the things you talked about was going out and getting uh, somebody pounding on the fence. Oh. Um, anything that happened in here kind of similar? Or? I had a little tiny guitar amp that we put in the microwave. <laughs> what? Well, just, I mean, we didn't turn it on. The microwave, but we were kind of wanting a weird little box sound. Like, everything in the studio has been banged on in some way just to get a sound out of it. I don't know, one time I took out the ceiling in the drum booth to make it, you know, more resonant. And, I mean, yeah, just, the, the, you know, it's a fake ceiling. And that sucked. So I had, uh, How long did it take to do that and put it back together? Not that long. I mean, about a couple hours. <laughs> <laughs> no big deal. Did you find anything interesting when you took the tiles down? <laughs> no, not really. I mean, this place is a... Uh, this building was a uh, go-kart garage in Decatur. There was a uh, go-kart track across town and this building was where they kept the go-karts and the and that drum booth was like an office where you paid to pay for your time on the go-kart it's like a little go-kart track how long was it that until it became clearwave uh, not too long probably yeah. let's say they moved the building yeah. from there over here i'm interested in the different lives this building has lived it was but they, when they moved it here they built it to be a studio and that was before I came in. So, but when I came in, it was already a studio. You know, I didn't have to do too much to adjust the building. Although, if I was to uh, build a studio from scratch, I probably was, wouldn't do it like this because this is everything is wrong about it. <laughs> this. Should not be a studio. <laughs> Uh, we've done, you know, like a harmonica on John Anders' album. We had uh, had him play his harmonica in the bathroom because it's a little livelier sounding. You know, sometimes when a band has way too many guitar players, there's always a guitar amp that ends up in the in the uh, bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's think about five, ten, twenty years down the road for Clearwave. What would you like to see happen with this studio? How would you like it to grow or? I definitely want to, uh, I just want to become, I would like for the bands who come through here to become a little more worldwide. You know, I would like for it to be a, kind of a creative hub and 
you know, and I would like for it to continue to be kind of like a home base, you know, for, uh, you know, for a lot of these bands. And a lot of bands tell me when they come through here, like, they'll spend a few days here and then they'll go off and do something else. And then when they come back, though, they they oh, man, this feels like home. I'm so glad to be back, you know. And I, I don't know, I kind of like that aspect of what we have going on over here. But I like being a, a small, cozy studio. I've worked in a few big studios, and it's just so weird. I mean, your drummer is, like, on the other side of a aircraft hangar, and it just feels weird. Bands are used to being fairly close to each other. You know, stages in this world aren't really that ridiculously big, and bands are used to piling in a van going somewhere or staying in a... Uh, you know, hotel room together. So I like the size of the studio. And I don't know if I'm going to be in this spot forever, but if I ever move, I'm just definitely going to be similar size. <laughs>